what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the life of uh, one of the men that God has used mightily in his kingdom. And that's a man by the name of Thomas Manton. How many of you are familiar with Thomas Manton? Thomas Manton is uh, relatively an unknown figure in the history of the church, but during his time, we would have all been very familiar with him. It was said at his funeral by the Reverend William Bates in his funeral sermon for Thomas Manton, Dr. Thomas Manton, a name worthy of precious and eternal memory. But yet it's strange to know that we know very little about this man. In fact, I could find only one biography on him. And most of my information from him came from this, this neat little book, Meet the Puritans. And I, I recommend this book. Uh, it, it covers all of the significant Puritans and insignificant ones that we, you, you'll never ever hear of them. and has a short biography of them and tells of their works. Why is it that a man like Thomas Manton, that we're told that his name is worthy and precious and worthy of eternal memory, why is it that today we don't hardly know who he is? One particular reason for that is after the ascension of Charles II to the King of England, the Puritan age died out. Puritan was a, a, a word that was used to mock the Puritans. Look at the pure ones. It was used to deride those men and women of that period of time. And so when Charles II assumed power after the death of Oliver Cromwell, the Puritan age slowly died out, and it slowly faded from memory. And like many movements, it's faded from our thoughts. It wasn't until the 1950s, through the work of Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, Ian Murray, John Stott, J.I. Packer, this sort of started a revival of the Puritans with something called Puritan Conferences. And then out of that formed the Banner of Truth and Trust, which was a publishing company. And one of the first works that they published was by John Owen. And so we all know who John Owen is, or we should know who John Owen is. And there is an abundance of scholarship and knowledge and biography on John Owen. I think I have about six biographies on John Owen. I have all of his complete works, and they've already been released, and now Crossway is re-releasing updated versions because there's been new works of John Owen. So there's just plenty of what we know about John Owen or Richard Baxter. Um, so there's these other Puritans that we think maybe they were of lesser importance than John Owen. It's not true. Their works just weren't published until later on. A number of years ago, a publishing company released the complete works, 22 volumes of Thomas Manton. I had no idea who he was, but I saw it and I said, the binding looks beautiful. I've got to have that. Spurgeon said he was great, so he must be great. And so I used my Christmas money, bought the complete works of Thomas Manton, and there they sat beautifully on my bookshelf untouched. <laughs> wasn't until really this last year that I began to imbibe on Thomas Manton's work. And uh, 
let me read you this quote of him. He preached as one that always had before his eyes the great end of ministry, the glory of God. And when you read Thomas Manton's sermons, that just comes through the pages, that he was singularly focused on the glory of God. He was primarily known as a preacher. He was a tremendous preacher. And when you read his sermons, the depth of his sermons on one verse, one word oftentimes, is, is oftentimes overwhelming. How could he pull so much from a text of Scripture? It was said this, He abhorred a vain ostentation of wit in handling sacred things, so venerable and grave and of eternal consequence. In other words, he didn't get in the pulpit and try to make you like him through entertainment, through jokes, and through storytelling, but he simply dealt with the heavy weight of God. And so what would it have been like to have said under him? It would have been encouraging because we would have been encouraged with the gospel. We would have grown in our knowledge of God and the glory of God. Manton would have expounded upon the Scripture and compared Scripture with Scripture. He would have brought forth the doctrines, and he would have taught this all in just a single sermon. So who was he? Well, he was born in 1620, died in 1677. It's not a very long life. He was a contemporary of John Owen, did not live as long as John Owen. He lived through the English Civil Wars and the regicide of Charles I. What's the regicide of Charles I? Charles I had dismissed Parliament and started to rule like a dictator, and Parliament rose up through civil wars and eventually executed him. Then came the power of Oliver Cromwell for a brief period of time, a little under 10 years, England became a republic, and Cromwell was considered the Lord Protected of England. Well, Cromwell died. His son Richard was not quite the leader that Oliver was, and so they brought back the son of Charles I, Charles II. And it was, it was a crazy time. If you were a Puritan, if you were a Congregationalist, if you were a Baptist, if you were a Presbyterian, it was a very strenuous, tumultuous time to live because you would have people watching you. Why would they be watching you? The government was watching them because they saw, Charles II saw, the Puritans as the source of his father's execution. So, if you can imagine having sending out spies to spy on church services to see if they were treasonous, if they supported the king, or if rather they were going to be trying to stage another coup or not, that was what it was like to live during that time. So, this is, this is when he preached, was throughout this whole entire tumultuous period of time. A few dates. 1639, he graduated from Oxford with a B.A., in 1654, a Bachelor of Divinity. Now, that's fascinating. 
because he was about 19 when he had his BA, which is normal. We might think that that's really young in today's standards. It is, but then it was, it was totally normal. But you'll notice that from 1639 to 54, there's this long period of time before he gets his master's, which was not, that, that's unique. That was, so why? We don't know. And then in 1660, six years later, he gets his doctorate degree. He's only going to live another 17 years. So he gets his, his education later in life, which is, again, that is unique for that time period. Most of these guys are wiping out their doctor's degrees in their 20s, um, but not Manton. I don't know why. In 1640, at the age of 20, he was ordained. 1643, he married Mary Morgan. They had children. We don't know how many children they had. There's, 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 at this point, we don't know. My thought is in the next 10, 15 years, there will be an abundance of writing on Thomas Manton. And the reason why is because Banner of Truth and Trust just recently republished his 22-volume set. And so what that will do is that will send scholars to studying it. And when they study that, they start to study primary source information, and then they zero in on Thomas Manton. And what you'll see, I believe, in the next few years is starting to see more work on Manton, which needs to be done. He was a pastor of the Stoke Newington London Church, where he became known for his rigorous Calvinism and piety. He became a leading Presbyterian, and through his influence, he tried to promote public trend through the tumultuous times. I, I think this is a defining point about Manton. In fact, it's even mentioned in, his, um, in William Bates's funeral sermon about how he was a promoter of peace. So he lived seeing a king executed, which was the first time and only time in English history that that had happened. He saw the wars. He saw Cromwell's campaigns through Ireland. And he was about peace, and he promoted peace. This isn't because he was a coward. It's not because Manton was weak. He was actually brave and courageous when Christopher Love was executed. And Christopher Love was, was executed under Cromwell, by the way, because he was viewed as treasonous. And so Cromwell had him executed. And at the death of Christopher Love, by the way, in Christopher Love, as he was pleading with the soldiers, let me say goodbye to my wife and pray with my wife and children and his newborn babies crying, the soldier said, no, you're a traitor. They hated Christopher Love. When he's executed, and there's a massive crowd there, Manton was forbid to preach. But Manton sees a crowd of people at the death of Christopher Love there, he takes the opportunity to preach the gospel, despite the threat that he would be shot. And so he was a courageous, he was a bold preacher. He took the opportunity to preach when he had it. He opposed Charles's execution, which is not unique. Most of the Puritans actually did. They did believe in the sovereignty of God in the election of um, leaders over them. And he was not favorable of that, but he, he still, even though he wasn't in favor of the execution, he still found favor with Cromwell, and Cromwell asked him to pray with him. He prayed, asked for uh, uh, Manton for guidance, 
They actually offered, Parliament offered to make Cromwell king. Owen said, don't do it. Manton said, don't do it. The other many Puritans said, don't do it. And um, Cromwell listened to them. When Charles II was restored, though, Manton swore allegiance to him. Many Puritans had to do that. Otherwise, they would face the consequences. And he even accompanied Charles and was appointed as one of 12 chaplains to the king. But uh, to my knowledge, that was never exercised by him. So in, in many ways, he, he, was, he was politically uh, in, in the limelight in some sense. But because he remained a staunch Presbyterian and would not conform to the Church of England, that means he was what we call a nonconformist. He was ejected from the Church of England. In 1662, he began preaching from his home because he couldn't pastor a church. And his congregation began to grow, which caused him to be arrested in 1670 for six months. So Thomas Manton was a felon. He was arrested for preaching the gospel out of his home. He was given license to preach after his jail time with the declaration of what was called indulgence in 1672. That meant that, that Presbyterians could preach, Baptist Congregationalists could preach. They had a little bit more freedom, but then that was annulled in 1675. And so Manton's congregation was crushed, it was split, but he continued to preach all the way until his death in 1677. I mentioned he had 22 volumes. Those 22 volumes are primarily sermons, though there are some works in there of books that he wrote. And if you were going to, uh, what would be a good book to get? Well, go to, go to the Banner of Truth and look at their Puritan paperbacks and type in Thomas Manton. Get the Temptation of Christ. That's a classic Puritan work. That's a good, easy one to go into. He wrote a commentary on James. He wrote a commentary on Jude. He preached through John 17 just to kind of get an idea of how he would handle John 17. There's 550 pages of sermons on John 17. Psalm 119, when he preached through that, that produced three volumes. Three volumes. Hebrews 11 65 sermons on Hebrews 11. He preached eight sermons on verse 4 of Hebrews 11. In fact, I want to read Hebrews 11.4. We read this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Eight sermons Manton preached on that. I, I don't think that necessarily that's what we need to do, or that preachers should aim for doing what Manton did. Manton was particularly gifted to be able to do that. Men, throughout church history, there's been a few select that can do that well. But I want to look at some of these sermons on Hebrews 11, verse 4. 
And as I've read through them, found them to be incredibly impactful. The first sermon, which is Sermon 12, it's the 12th sermon. So by the time he gets to verse 4, he's already preached 12 sermons. And he starts off by explaining why Paul begins with Abel. So who wrote Hebrews? Well, Thomas Manton says it was Paul. Almost all the, all the Puritans, before the modern era, almost all commentators would have said that it was written by Paul. It's only today that people doubt that. So Manton begins by the sermon by just simply explaining, why did Paul begin with Abel? Why didn't he start somewhere else? He says this, Abel was the first man persecuted for righteousness. And the whole point then was for God to embolden the Hebrews to know that, hey, this man was uh, uh, persecuted for righteousness' sake. He got through it. He was counted as righteous. You can too. He says, number two, Abel was the first person that was never in a possibility to be saved by any other way than that of faith. Tremendous point that he makes. He says, Moses mentions nothing notable of Adam after the fall. You ever thought about that? Adam lives for over 900 years. We just see he fathered more children. That's all that's said about him. Now the text, as you read Genesis, it's clear. Adam was preaching to his children. But there's nothing notable said of him. He makes this fourth point. Abel was a type of Christ. Puritans were so rich on typology. They would see the fullness of the Old Testament text, and they would be able to say, this is pointing to Christ, and here's how it's pointing to Christ. So after he gives these four reasons, he then moves into the exegesis of the passage. What is exegesis? Exegesis is a pooling out of the passage. What's the passage saying? So he's not putting his thoughts into it. He's pooling out the meaning of the text itself. And he begins by saying Abel's action is this, is that he offered a more acceptable sacrifice. Now, this is typical of Puritans. When you read their sermons, they summarize all of their points right up front. Well, a lot of Puritans do this. And then they begin to expand those points And what's difficult about reading a Puritan, you'll see, okay, here's point one, and then there's a trail of points. And you get a couple pages later, and it's like, here's point two. After it's gone, here's point one, here's sub-point, here's another sub-point, and here's another sub-point. And you're trying to follow it along their thinking. And that's what Manton does. After he speaks of Abel's action, he goes into several points of doctrine. And this is also common when you read the Puritans. You'll see use or you'll see doctrine. And it's usually abbreviated. It'll say doc, D-O-C-T, period. And you'll see that in the sermon. It's going to say some sort of doctrine. He says this first doctrine is that in all our addresses to God, we must solemnly remember to honor Christ. Now, if you read... What it says here in verse 4, would you have come up with that doctrine? That in all that we do in our dresses to God, we must solemnly remember to honor Christ. Manton sees that in the text. Why? Because Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Why? Because he trusted in Christ. He honored Christ. Cain did not. 
goes into another doctrine. That in times of our increase and plenty, we must solemnly acknowledge God. Why did he say that? Well, because Abel offered a sacrifice. Not only as a foreshadowing of what Christ would do in his spilt blood, but also, thank you, Lord, you provided this animal for me. Another doctrine, he says, is that whatever is done in worship must be done out of conscience and with respect to the institution. What is he talking about there? Is our worship that we gather together and what we do must be done in honor. After this, he deals with a series of questions and objections, and that's another thing that's beautiful about the Puritan preaching. And by the way, this is what we sometimes call uh, a scholastic method because he's asking questions and objections, and he's dealing with those in the sermon. So if someone, someone had, wait, hold on, what about this in the sermon? Well, Manton's already two steps ahead of you, and he's going to deal with those objections and answer them in the sermon itself. He goes on to say the fruits of this, and he gives this application, and I quote, this is, this is, this is something that hits a lot of us, I'm sure. We adjourn and put off the work of religion to the aches of old age. When we have scarce any vigor, any strength of affections left, oh, then we will worship God. We devote to Satan the flower of our lively youth and fresh age, and we adjourn to God the rottenness and dregs of our old age. How often that is true, that we do that. He moves into Sermon 13, and by the way, each sermon flows into the next sermon. In fact, he often starts it off by saying, this is what we dealt with last week, now we're moving into this. And Sermon 13 is where I really want to spend some time. He starts off by saying that carnal men may join the people of God in external duties of worship. Why does he say that? Well, because Cain and Abel both were worshiping God. They both brought sacrifices. They were both outwardly doing the things that God had prescribed for them to do. So he says, carnal men may join the people of God. In the external duties of worship, that's what's key. He's nuanced. He says, though they do join, yet in the performance of them, there is a sensible and manifest difference. He says, this difference, performance, arises from the influence and efficacy of faith. So he makes a series of points. And I want you to see now how he deals with human nature. He says, natural conscience will put men upon worship. Now, he's just simply dealing with what we sometimes call natural theology, and that God has revealed himself to all of mankind. And he bases this on Romans 2.14, which says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Men worship. Men worship. It's just, what are they worshiping? Are they worshiping the one true God? And so he says it's a natural thing that conscience in itself is something in man that drives man to worship. 
He says, conscience, like the stomach, must be filled and have something to pacify it, lest it should bark at us and reproach us all the day long. Men must put on the garb of religion, or their own conscience will not let them be quiet. He, says, he compares that which is nagging in natural man to that of a stomach that's hungry, and we all know that feeling. Well, what a visualization that he brings out. He says also this is custom will direct to the worship. And what is he talking about that? Is that sometimes people will worship simply out of custom of what they see everyone else doing or what they're told that they're supposed to do. But it might not necessarily be true worship. And he, he bases this out of Ezekiel 33. In verse 31, he says, And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it, for with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. How would you pull that passage out as you're thinking of these, these things? And Oh, Ezekiel 33, 31 from that point. That's how thoroughly knowledgeable the Puritans were with the Scriptures. He says this, all a, man's natural, uh, all a natural man's religion is but cold conformity to what others practice. And their worship riseth higher and higher according to the rate of their company and their education. What's Manton saying there is if there's a static worship and they're watching that or there's more grand worship, those that are unregenerate oftentimes buy into that. And build that up. He goes on to say, carnal impulses will add force and vigor to the performance. So he's calling worship now a performance. He said, and, and he, what are these ends? What are these, these performances? He says, vain glory. Men join with the people of God in actions of worship that they may have occasion to discover their parts with more applause. And he references Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, where it is said that Paul says that there's some that preach Christ out of envy to bring harm to him. And so they're preaching Christ and they're, they're bringing these actions. Why? For the applause of men. He says sometimes people will worship for secular aims and advantages. Now, in, in my lifetime, I haven't really seen this, or I've seen the, the death of this. But at, at one time, and particularly in the Bible Belt, if you didn't go to church, that was detrimental if you were a person of standing in any community. And because it was important that you were in church. You have social connections. You may be able to uh, make sort of some sort of connections that will benefit your business in somehow. And so it was common for people to act this way. And he says this is the meaning is that they might be thought godly and conscientious and so be interested with the estates of widows and orphans or draw contributions. In other words, people do things, they go to worship to gain trust so that that way they could take advantage of people. So what are the uses of this? He says it serves to inform us that the bare performance of the duties of religion is no gracious evidence. Cain may sacrifice as Abel as well as Abel. So what is, what's he saying? 
The fact that someone worships, let's say you see someone worshiping a, in, a, in a certain way that, that it's noticeable, that they're, they're singing loud, they're, they're, they're making a grand show of their prayer. That's no sign that they're saved. That's his point. And he gives some propositions from this. You may cheat conscience and deceive man by these outward acts of duty, but God is not mocked. You imagine sitting under Manton's preaching as he's describing these things, and maybe he grabs eyes with someone sitting in the congregation. He says, God's not mocked by false worship. He said, a man may miscarry, though he be employed in the highest ministries and duties of religion. And he quotes Matthew 7, 23. And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says, the heart may be somewhat exercised in duty, and yet is no gracious evidence. What is he speaking of here? The heart may be somewhat, somewhat exercised in duty. Well, we talked about it this morning in the sermon, is that the emotions can sometimes be stirred in worship. Whether it's the music, or whether it's the sermon, something hits us. That's not always a sign and evidence of grace. In fact, we have to be very careful. If we rest our faith on those things, rather than resting our faith upon the completed work of Christ. He says there may be exercise of joy in duties and grief in the defective duties. This is a warning that he's calling the congregation to examine their own heart as he has put forth Abel who was righteous and Cain that was wicked. And he's, he's, he's putting before his congregation these two men and saying, are you one of these? You must examine your heart. Just because you're here worshiping doesn't mean that God's grace has been bestowed upon you in salvation. He says this, The stony ground received the word with joy. Men out of carnal respect may delight in the ordinances of God. A judicious man may delight in judicious preaching, preaching and take pleasure in the gifts of the minister and the gracefulness of his utterance when there is no grace in the heart. I had preached a funeral a few months ago. And when you preach a funeral uh, outside of the church, there's a good chance most of the people there are unregenerate. And this was certainly the case. And I preached, and this man came up to me, well-meaning man came up to me and said, I, I wish I could speak like that. Did not care about the gospel. What he cared about was how the person presented the message. And so you can be hear a message and, and be, wow, that's incredible. Every time I listen to R.C. Sproul present a lesson, I'm always impressed of how he presented himself, and didn't use notes, and how his eye contact was, and how animated he was. He was a master. But just because that moves a person doesn't mean anything. That's what Manton's point is. 
or thinking that if I take partake in the Lord's Supper, that, that that means that I'm saved. Or that if I'm baptized, that I'm saved. He says, these are no evidence of grace in the heart. By the way, when you read Puritans, you will find the words of affections constantly in their writings, dealing with affections. And Jonathan Edwards wrote an entire treatise on the affections of religion. He goes on to say, There may be some grief for the defects of duty, which yet is not right, as when the heart is troubled for outward defects rather than inward, for weakness and brokenness and expressions rather than deadness of spirit. And we look more to the liveliness and freshness of parts than of graces. And his point here is over sadness, over negative things, is not enough that there is proof of a positive serving of the Lord. Again, we cannot rely upon our affections. He says it's not enough to make, a consci make conscious of the duties that we perform. Natural men may engage in acts of worship upon the mere enforcement of natural conscience. Now remember, this is where it gets difficult to follow the Puritans. What did he already say about the natural conscience? That it drives us to worship. All men worship. So he's, he's going back to that and pulling from that. And he gives this example. He says, as the mariners in their distress called everyone upon his God, Jonah. Remember in Jonah that all of those that were on the ship are crying out to their gods. They all believed in God. They're all worshiping. They're always they're responding. They're crying out for help to their gods. He says it is but a carnal principle and impulse for someone to call out to their God. Now because it is a hard matter to distinguish the workings of natural conscience from the workings of grace, I shall give you some notes when we work out of natural conscience, it may be discerned several ways. Now, if you're sitting in his congregation, this is where he goes to encourage you. He's brought the convicting of God's word, and he begins to bring the balm of the gospel. And oftentimes, Puritans would give these tests. It says, natural conscience works chiefly by the means of slavish fear by the terror and awe that it impresses upon the spirit. But then listen to what he says. Faith works by love, but natural conscience works by fear. He's drawing into question what it is that motivates the person. He says natural conscience shows us duty, but not the good of the duty. In other words, natural conscience tells me I need to worship tells me I need to do these things, and as he's already said, sometimes we do these things because we're told to do them, or we watch others do them. But he says the one that is regenerate, the one that is saved, understands why it is that we pray, why it is that we sing, why it is that we sit under the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word, why it is that we partake in the Lord's Supper. The one that is truly saved understands the good of these things. Whereas the other person that's unregenerate is just does it because it's duty to do it. That's revealing of the heart, isn't it? When it becomes duty rather than recognizing the good of it. 
He gives a second use. He says, if it be so that carnal men may join the people of God in duties of worship, here is direction. In all your duties, put your hearts to this question. Wherein do I excel a hypocrite? Think about that question. Wherein do I excel a hypocrite? So far a natural man may go. As Christ said in Matthew 5.47, Do not even the publicans the same? When thou art praying and hearing, and thy heart doth not go out with such delight and complacency to God to say, May not a carnal man do this? He's saying, as you go to pray to the Lord, am I doing anything more than just a carnal man would do? Examine your heart. This is how he ends this sermon, with that piercing question. And he leaves you hanging until the next Sunday to pick it right back up again and to dive in right where he left off. We can see that it was true that there was no sense of humor in Thomas Manton's preaching. He dealt with the heavy things of God. He was singularly focused. But he shows a shepherd's heart here. He shows a shepherd's heart in that he wants to not only bring conviction to his congregation, but he wants to comfort them as well. And he wants to give them something that as they walk out, they can rest assured in the gospel and have been encouraged that if they're in Christ, they're saved. And then that's the role of a shepherd to do that. I wish there was more that we knew of him. But why should we read Manton or why should we read the Puritans? And I, I, I would think that Thomas Manton's a good place to start. I've been reading his book called The, um, the Life of Faith. Primarily on Galatians 2.20 is the, the whole entire book, The Life of Faith. And I thought I would finish it, have finished it by now. But I can't because it's, it's so rich that you, you read a page and you just stop. And you think about what he said. Um, it's a tremendous work that he does and it, and it just hits you and penetrates to the soul. So why, why should you read Thomas Manton? Why should you familiarize yourself with Thomas Manton's and, and the Puritans in general? Well, the first thing is this. You will learn the Bible and see it in its fullness. You'll learn the Bible. So uh, if someone says, why would I read something like a Puritan? I can just read the Bible. Well, when you're reading the Puritans, in some sense, you're reading the Bible. Now, what I'm, I'm not saying that they, what they spoke was God's word. What I'm saying is everything they dealt with was according to God's word. <laughs> You can't get a, a couple of sentences past uh, anything before there's a scripture reference there and you're seeing how they're connecting scripture. They interpreted scripture according to scripture and stood in the great tradition of, tr of interpretation. What do I mean by that? The great tradition of interpretation is to say this, this entire book is God's word. And if God wrote this as one single author, it means it's all connected and we should see it that way. Uh, that has moved out of style uh, today where, with really enlightenment thinking, 
where we analyze all of these words and we make a we make this is what Paul says and this is what John says and we make them distinct a John school and a Paul school of thought and this is a this type of literature rather than saying no it is all the word of God and has to be interpreted together working together that's how the puritans interpreted scripture that doesn't mean they didn't do word studies they did but what in determined the interpretation was the full canon of Scripture, the totality of Scripture working together. So when you read a Puritan, you will be learning the Bible. You'll learn how to interpret the Scriptures correctly. You'll also learn classical theology. What do I mean by classical theology? They were thoroughly rooted in the creeds. They were thoroughly rooted in the creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Constantinopolitan Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasius Creed. They were thoroughly aware of these and interpreted Scripture according to those things. So you will learn theology of the church. The Puritans were not doing something novel. The Puritans were not inventing new theology. They were standing in the great tradition of the church, proclaiming the doctrinal truths of God's word, and standing in continuity with the church. And what do I mean by with the church? The Catholic Church. You prior to the Reformation, you have a period of a couple hundred years of darkness. But it wasn't as if there wasn't a remnant. It wasn't as if there wasn't a wonderful legacy of Christian thinkers, Augustine, Athanasius, Irenaeus. These were all those that he would have leaned upon and been familiar with them. There's another thing is that you'll be challenged to meditate upon the word. How is it that Manton could preach those eight sermons on Hebrews 11? It is the fruit of meditation upon the scripture. It is him looking at the text of Scripture and reflecting upon it and thinking upon it. Manton makes this point in one of his statements on meditation. And I heard a, a lecture by Stephen Yuley make this point. And he says this is that you're going to meditate on something. And in Yuley's lecture, he goes, right now you're meditating on something. You're either meditating on whatever I'm saying <laughs> Or you're thinking about something else, but you're meditating. We're always meditating on stuff. We're always thinking through things. We're always running things through our mind. But what is it that we're running through our mind? What is it that we're thinking about? This is why Manton preached eight sermons on it says that Isaac was in the field and meditated. <laughs> eight sermons on that. You'll be challenged to meditate upon the Word. You'll also be challenged to pray. The Puritans show us their dependency upon the Lord, and prayer is the best demonstration of our dependence upon the Lord. When you read of their insistence of their prayer life, oftentimes it leaves us feeling shame. What, what it shouldn't. What it should do is it should motivate us to prayer. Drive us to the Lord in prayer. Do any of you feel satisfied with your prayer life? I've never met a person that says, I feel satisfied with my prayer life. Will the Puritans help us with that? 
They show us that all of life is to the glory of God and dedicated to God and that we need to spend time and be a people of prayer. Let me give you two practical reasons why you should read Manton. You'll become a better reader. You'll become a better thinker. Why is that? Because it's, it's not written out like we would normally read something. You actually have to follow proposition to a proposition to a proposition and then come back to another proposition and then follow that through. That takes work. And if that takes work, it means it's difficult to do. And if something's difficult to do, what does that usually mean? It's good for us. You're exercising your brain, in other words, by reading the Puritans. You'll become a better reader. You'll become a better thinker by reading them. You'll also become a better listener. Why will you become a better listener? Because as you begin to immerse yourself in reading them, you begin to think like they think, you begin to see things, and it be, actually becomes easier to listen to connections and speech because you've been training your mind for that. So you'll become a better reader, you'll become a better listener, you'll become a better thinker. The most important reason, though, is that you'll be edified and encouraged in your faith, or you'll be found that you don't have faith. And that's the truth. We'll be encouraged in our faith, We'll be encouraged to walk boldly for the Lord and to lean upon Him, or the, the searching sermons will eventually penetrate our heart and reveal to us that maybe we're lost. So should we read the Puritans? Yeah, absolutely. We should be familiar with them. We should treasure them. Because the Lord poured out His Spirit upon these men to teach the church. The Lord says that He gives teachers, evangelists, preachers, for the gift of the church, for the edification of the body. And so I would encourage all of you to pick up something by Manton in particular, or pick up any Puritan, and spend the time, even if you got through one Puritan work in an entire year, you won't regret it. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the people that you have raised up in in your providence throughout church history. We're thankful for men like Thomas Manton that teach us so much about your word and how you use so mightily in the church and, and continue to still use. Father, we, we do not worship him. We recognize he was a man of like nature like us. But Father, we are grateful for men like Manton of what he can teach us about your gospel and the truths of your word. I pray that you would give us a burning desire to know your word more and to, to know these men that you have gifted in the church. What a cloud of witnesses you have given us. Father, I pray we would, we would richly think upon these rich truths that we read as, as Manton looked at your word and expounded upon your word, and we get to receive the fruit of that labor of his. We give you the glory for his life, and we give you the glory for our salvation and our, the work you do in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
啊